Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Welcome to another episode of Common Sense with Dr. Ben Carson. I'm your host, Ben Carson. You know, the recent failures of uh, Silicon Valley, Silvergate, Signature Banks created a lot of confusion, a lot of acrimony across the financial sector, perhaps not more so in the crypto sector. And uh, this is a sector that's already been reeling from the failure of the uh, cryptocurrency exchange, FTX, with Sam Bankman-Fried. What does all that mean, and what's next for the sector? Luckily for us, we already had Kathy Craninger scheduled to come on the podcast to talk about her work on cryptocurrency regulation with Solidus Labs. But as the former director of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, she also happens to be a former bank regulator. So we're very excited to have uh, Kathy with us today. Uh, welcome, Kathy, and thank you for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. It's fantastic to be with you, Doc. I got a big question for you to start because people ask me this all the time, and I hear it asked all the time. What the heck exactly is cryptocurrency? That is a great place to start. And I think we've done a poor job as an industry in naming and explaining, but let me take a step back and explain why. This is really about the future of the internet and the future of financial infrastructure. And so as we think about all of the things that we can do today on the cell phone that we walk around with in our hand, and even calling it a phone is kind of a, a misnomer because it's a computer uh, in our hands all of the capabilities, all we care about is making that purchase on Amazon and the fact that it shows up at our house or that we can text everybody and communicate through social media. But all of that behind the scenes, communicating, messaging, you know, sending what are actually zeros and ones through those lines and that comes out on the other side as a message to all of us, that's the part that... Um, you know, is really what the ecosystem around blockchain and cryptocurrency is about. So cryptocurrency is cryptographically um, protected. That means we've got, it's a really a mathematical equation effort. And again, very technical around how do you secure these assets or these tokens 
and currency, the people who originally thought up the blockchain technology and, and have been building it really thought this was the future of currency and the future of payments. I'll tell you, I don't know that I, I fully agree. I think it's really more accurate to say it's the future of the internet and then the future of this infrastructure, which is why so many of us remain skeptical and kind of confused about what it is. But what we're going to care about is, again, those builders of Amazon and Google and, and what we can do with the blockchain technology and right. the tokens that we end up trading and, and our ability to show that we own something, that it has value, that we can exchange it, and we can prove all of that on these ledgers and in this infrastructure. So I, that's, my, that's my brief explanation of trying <laughs> to make this understandable. Well, that's that's clearer than I've ever heard it before. But if it's something of value and it's something that people can own, is it also something that's insured? It, it can be, yes. And that is actually part of the cryptographic part of it, too. It's something that can be secured. Part of the kind of the race that's happening now is a lot of different projects and protocols that are being built are testing different types of technology to really secure this, you know, this technology and be able to sustain it, be able to grow and expand it. And so from that sense, there's that dynamic. There okay. is an insurance aspect. So there's actually, I mean, you think about, again, all of the things that get built on the internet with insurance products and lending products. And that's, that's also something that's happening in this space how can you make sure that it is protected because it is, you know, it's online. So all of the cybersecurity concerns that we have in our everyday, you know, lives and engaging with the internet, those exist in this space. And then you also then have desire for insurance, desire for consumer protection. What remedy do I have if, if my wallet is hacked or if the protocol I'm working with is hacked? How do we think about and deal with those things? So there definitely is an insurance component to this too. And frankly, the last point I'd make is just how new this is. The technology is really only 11 years old. And you think about how long it takes to get these things into consumer products and things that people you know, can understand and interact with. It's still all really new. Yeah. Well, as a, uh, a bank regulator, I'll have you put your bank regulator hat on here. What exactly uh, happened with uh, Silicon Valley and Signature? I mean, walk us through what happened with these bank failures. So they weren't all the same, but I will say just from a macro standpoint, one of the biggest issues in, and particularly the Silicon Valley Bank, I'd say there are two issues I'd focus on, but the first is around interest rate risk. So essentially, the banks have to think about how, of course, they back their assets. And with the continuing uh, increase in the interest rates that the Fed is doing, you know, that all of the meetings that they have where they're deciding what the interest rate is going to be, that has an impact on what assets banks have and what those assets are worth. So you look at treasury bonds are a big part of this. They back their assets with bonds. As they have long-term bonds that they've purchased with interest rates 
those bonds are not worth what they were worth when they bought them. And so you have you have a challenge here. They didn't have the assets to back up the deposits that they had and that they were lending on. So they should have that was going to happen. Yeah. And and so, so that's mismanagement. That's mismanagement in, in its yeah. simple sense. That's something that bankers need to think about, have always needed to think about. And and so at some of these banks, they were relying on long-term bonds that you know are not worth what they had been worth when they bought them. So that's that's a real issue and a management issue and an oversight issue by government regulators. You know, what were they doing to point that out at the banks because it's a known risk? The other side that I want to highlight and I have highlighted is this issue around a lot of crypto companies banked at these banks, a lot of tech companies in Silicon Valley Bank, particularly at Silicon Valley Bank. Why is that? So the other dimension that bankers need to think about is the diversification of their risks and which sectors they actually are working with and how uh, they ensure that they are diversified. It's something we all think about in our own portfolios, too. They had relationships with a lot of these entrepreneurs because they understood them and they probably they went very heavily into tech entrepreneurs. So there was a heavy concentration in their client base that were venture capitalists and that were tech companies. Um, The question is, why aren't other banks banking those tech companies? Why don't tech companies feel comfortable going to other banks? In my mind, I think that's that's a real question also for us to be thinking about because banks are pushed to be very, very, very risk averse. And what does that do for us as a country? Because this country's greatness is built on the ability of small businesses to get capital for banks to actually have a role in helping lend those companies uh, the assets they need to grow and you know have economic opportunity, all of us. So that's the other facet of this is just the concentration of tech and the bank run, I guess is the last point. Those venture capitalists talk to each other and they talk to each other a lot on social media and Twitter. Once that bank run started, mm-hmm. everyone was pulling out. Um, and so that massive level of deposits that were there, uninsured deposits, which means over $250,000 by each of these companies, for a lot of reasons I, I can get into more too, but we'll, we can leave it at that for now. Uh, those uninsured deposits, people were very concerned about, and that's why they ran on the bank. And right. he had a significant portion of uninsured deposits from tech companies. Well, Bernie Sanders and, and some others have said it was the rollback of some of the Dodd-Frank regulations during the Trump administration that caused this. Is there any validity in what he's saying? Um, I, definitely not. So it's a good one to pull apart because there has been a lot of misinformation about that. So what happened in 2018 was actually an act of Congress. So it was not regulations that were rolling back the Dodd-Frank requirements just from an administrative standpoint. It was a bipartisan bill in Congress. There were a number of prominent Democrats who were involved in that. And it was recognizing, again, that some of the provisions just went too far. But actually, none of the changes that were instituted in that 2018 law actually would have been relevant in these particular circumstances. Yeah. Well, you know, there's always the default position of it was Trump's fault. (laughs) Yes, that's convenient. Uh, In this case, there's just there's no truth to it at all. Yeah. Now. You know, 
the administration, the current administration announced that they're really helping the depositors, not the banks. They're not bailing out the banks with their proposals. Who is being bailed out and what's the danger there? So there, I mean, you and I both know this having having worked in government and I, I worked uh, on the budget side of government operations for a long time. So it's always appropriate to be skeptical of who ultimately pays. And as you look at the debt situation in this country, taxpayers are paying ultimately for, for many things uh, and, and many of the things that we need to build and get our country out of, frankly, as we think about the path ahead. But as a, you know, a specific dynamic here, how deposit insurance works at the FDIC and the fact that the decision was made to ensure all depositors and not just up to the $250,000, you know, per depositor, per institution, that decision does have an impact. And so what happens is that the FDIC pays that out, deals with that in a lot of different ways as the banks are, are sold, their assets are sold, liquidated as they go through that process. There will be some funds captured there. But at the end of the day, there is an assessment on banks that helps make sure that the deposit insurance is there for the next time that it is needed. So that assessment on banks, that's the issue that is being debated right now. There are some community banks saying, hey, we shouldn't have to be assessed for this. You know, we weren't we weren't responsible for this. So that process often happens, too. But the FDIC has a decision about what that assessment looks like. And then those institutions have to recover those funds somehow or have to actually get those funds somehow to pay those assessments. So that's the way this works. You know, so, so it's not technically, yes, a taxpayer bailout, but the money always comes from somewhere. Now, Bernie Marcus said that uh, these banks are badly run because everybody is focused on diversity and all the woke issues not concentrating on the one thing they should, which is shareholder return. Is he right? Oh, I think that's probably a broad generalization, but I think there is validity to the need to say that's, you know, they need to be paying attention to their basic risk management. And certainly that that should be the focus of these institutions and their mission. Their mission to, again, provide shareholder value, but to to actually fulfill a, a lot of those lending opportunities that build economic opportunity for the country. You know, that's why the deposit insurance system's even instituted. We're talking about private entities. Why is there insurance at all that the federal government actually is providing? And it really is to enable so many of the things that make this country great in terms of the ability to build a business and obtain capital. So that's the focus for banks. That's the purpose. Um, do I believe that, you know, there are absolutely groups of people in this country who historically have been discriminated against? And do we need to think about that in policies? Uh, certainly. But at the heart of the matter, it's are these good investments? Are these, you know, what type of analysis is happening? That's the important part at the, at the heart of this is the risk management approach. Yeah, the, the problem that I see banks or, or any of our corporate institutions start getting involved in social issues, they should have their own 
interior sense of morality and what's good and what's bad. If you have others dictating what is good and what is bad, that's a sliding scale. And that can just move all over the place. And you find yourself just jumping through hoop after hoop as opposed to determining what your values and standards are, making those known and showing the results and what you do. And, uh, you know, that's what I told a large corporate entity this week. I said, you know, you guys have been doing this and these are your results way before DEI and ESG became prominent. And that's what you should be talking about and building on that. Because the other thing is an ever-moving target, and you'd be chasing yourself forever. Now that makes that makes a lot of sense, Doc. You're, you'll you'll find agreement from me too. I also think so many things we focus on the current crisis or the current topic uh, du jour, and forget about other things. And fundamentally, this is about a comprehensive, you know, risk management approach focused on you know the core mission, the core values. And uh, I think many of us would benefit in the country from a little bit more long-term thinking and and not just thinking about today or tomorrow. Well, I think uh, often that I'll wake up one day and just discover it was a bad dream (laughs) that we temporarily lost our minds. But uh, I think we will get back on the right track. And speaking of getting right back, we'll be back after taking a short break to talk a little more with Kathy Sanchez. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. And we're back with uh, Kathy Craninger, former head of CFPB, and now vice president of regulatory affairs at Solidus Labs. Kathy, where does crypto go from here? How resilient is the crypto market in, in light of the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank? So we really are an exciting industry, and unfortunately, not as much in the U.S., uh, frankly, as it is overseas. So that's the part I would talk about. It has less to do with the the failure of Silicon Valley Bank and the other banks in the U.S. and more to do with the regulatory environment that the industry finds itself facing in the U.S. in particular. So there are a lot of countries across the globe that see the opportunity and excitement about the future of financial infrastructure and the future of the Internet, as I've described the crypto industry. And, you know, that's in Europe, 
instituting actually uh, an entirely new regulatory framework through a law called uh, MECA that they are passing and they're going to work through regulations on. There are a lot of countries uh, actually in the the Middle East that are uh, becoming places where crypto builders are building because they have regimes that are specifically providing clear regulation. And you contrast that with the U.S., in particular, some of the U.S. regulators are saying, oh, we don't need to do anything different to accommodate this technology or to make clear rules. We're going to enforce what are traditional market structure requirements on them, tell them they need to register with the SEC, even if they contend that they're not selling any securities. Uh, and they need to you know, basically just conform to the current regime. And frankly, a lot of U.S. regulators are sending the signal They don't actually care whether the U.S. is the future place for building, you know, the future of financial infrastructure, which is pretty disappointing uh, as an American. It's, you know, you think about our role as a country in building the Internet and where that has gotten us. And it is really about a lot of growth opportunity and, frankly, many of the values that folks purport to care about. Well, a lot of people are a little apprehensive, I think, right now about uh, cryptocurrency, thinking that it's spawning a huge unregulated financial system without investor protection. What would you say to calm their fears or are they legitimate fears? Yeah, there. Look, wherever there is an opportunity to make money, there are people looking to engage in scams. And wherever there's new technology that not everyone's gotten the chance to interact with or experience, you know, you have less sophisticated consumers. And that actually begs a regulatory regime that begs clear rules that good actors can actually follow clearly. And unfortunately, again, with the nature of the world, the U.S. decides not to lead there. U.S. agencies are not protecting Americans because Americans can interact with all of these companies still based in other places in the world, in some cases, not following any rules, and in some cases, actually following you know good rules. So it's a mixed bag there, but it means the U.S. doesn't lead. The U.S. doesn't actually provide its own protections for its own citizens and residents. And so that's, I think, the opportunity that's lost here. You're not protecting consumers, which means you're not, you know, you're not actually putting anything in place, and yet consumers are still going to access these services. Now, some people say cryptocurrency is democratizing financial markets, decentralized finance as a way to move things from centralized to peer-to-peer transactions, and that this sort of takes power away from the government and Wall Street and puts it back in the hands of the people. Is that the wave of the future, you think? I do think it's an exciting part about this ecosystem. If you take it out of finance and talk about art and creation um, and intellectual property as an example of, again, what this can facilitate, you know, people can put their creation out there as an NFT and they can actually sell it and benefit from it without any without going to you know big art houses or anything else. They can sell their music direct to the people through these mechanisms all of that creative endeavor and and proof of ownership is pretty exciting. You put it in finance, and I can tell you for myself, 
I don't see that I'm going to be doing that myself um, because, frankly, it's the time, attention, energy, the protections that do come from having intermediaries in a system. But the option should be there. Definitely, in my opinion, the option should be there for people to interact the way they want to. And we also know we have left people behind with our financial system, the way it operates. And so the opportunity, again, for somebody to say, I want to make my own decisions. I want to make my own risk calculus. And I'm I'm capable of doing that. I think they should have that option. So it really is about expanding opportunity, expanding access and also having a place, there will be a place for intermediaries. Well, you know, it's a complicated topic. And, you know, DeFi or decentralized financing, maybe we need to back up a little bit because DeFi runs on blockchain. Now, can you tell our listeners what exactly is blockchain? That's another one of those cryptocurrency questions. Everybody's heard of it. (laughs) Yes, but they're not quite sure they understand it. So I think it gets me back to the the blockchain is really think about it as a ledger and it's a virtual ledger, if you will. It's technical. It's software code that's being built. And those cryptocurrencies or tokens, you might hear them get called digital assets. That's what's actually helped building the blockchain. So those are the kind of the, that's the mechanism to build the blockchain to the next chain. So every group of transactions, you know, is is trading tokens is moving that value from one person to another. And the blockchain is the record of that movement and that ownership shift, if you will, or that transaction. So that's what the blockchain is. It's software. And so many, you also hear the term smart contract, which is also maybe not a great term, but it is how do you embed all of the rules about the transactions into, again, this public ledger so everyone can see what the rules are. And it's done by software, but it's a pre-agreement. You know, if, if I'm going to sell you my house and you're going to pay, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars for it, the software actually says, OK, here's the mechanism by which both sides offer their ownership and the exchange doesn't happen until both sides have done what they said they were going to do. And you don't need anybody in the middle for that. The software just executes when both sides have actually provided, according to the rules of the software, what they promised to do. So it is, it's a pretty powerful capability there, not needing that intermediary. But you also have intermediaries that could facilitate you know, that transaction, just like we have them today. Now, where is it backed up? You know, Traditional currency, you know, you got Fort Knox, you got places that back things up. Where's any of this backed up? Or is it backed up? Yes. And some of it definitely is. So one of the key things in the ecosystem for, again, helping to exchange value when some of these tokens are just new projects and and do they actually have any inherent value or what is their value? Frankly, their, their value is what someone's willing to pay for them which does cause some interesting challenges here. But we have companies that are issuing stable coins. It's also a a word to be careful with if you hear about stable coins, but those that are truly stable are backed. And there are uh, a number of them. A company called Circle actually issues USDC. So it's basically a dollar uh, designated and backed stable coin. They actually have uh, one-to-one reserves 
Uh, they are a regulated company by the state of New York and has a money service business in states across the country. And they're a global company. So they have the reserves and have proven that and do um, you know, regularly provide demonstration of that. So there are backings of things. And then some it's it's market driven. Again, what which, you know, how much will someone pay to actually buy that token gets you to though commonly people aren't going to understand this until they actually understand what types of things are being built on that token. What can you do with it? Yeah, when they start doing it, they'll understand it. <laughs> okay. But it, it sounds like like DeFi is a good thing, or potentially a good thing that we should be thinking about. And with that, we will take another short break and we'll be right back with our, our last segment with Kathy Panager. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low- and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he'll chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. And we are back with common sense. You know what I always say, common sense is no longer common. But we're doing everything we can to spread it around and make it common here again. And one of the things we're doing to help do that is talking to Kathy Craninger today, talking about the uh, crypto industry, and particularly in light of some recent banking collapses and anxiety that people have around that. Now, Kathy, can you tell me about Solidus Labs, where you work now, when did they come about and what do you do there? The company is five years old and it is a U.S. company headquartered in New York, but we have operations across the globe. And what we do, uh, it's really a software company. What we do is help those crypto companies that are engaging in trading. So you've got your platforms and big names like that or broker dealers market makers, regulators, anyone involved in the trading of cryptocurrencies, digital assets, we provide the software to help them make sure that there's no manipulation or fraud in their exchange, in their ecosystem, and broadly around the tokens that they are listing and putting up for trade. So it's a role that is, you know, again, kind of part of the infrastructure in traditional finance. There are companies that do this in traditional finance. And we're part of helping to build crypto and build it in a safe way. So it's been a, a fascinating journey to help build this company 
uh, and to be part of this ecosystem and, and building it and thinking about what rules should apply. What's and the right you, behavior? You, you do market surveillance. How do you surveil that? What does that mean? <laughs> no, it's, it's a great question. So just like, you know, the New York Stock Exchange or NASDAQ, they list all of these, you know, equities, stocks, uh, other, other um, or commodities exchanges, as you think about those things. It's watching the transactions, the buys and sells that are happening, uh, watching the flow of funds as people are depositing funds or withdrawing funds or depositing or withdrawing assets uh, onto the blockchain. We watch all of that data around those transactions and those trades and are looking for patterns of things that are, again, inappropriate or illegal. So you think about um, those who are using insider information. Always, I mean, this is a, a classic thing that happens still in traditional markets after years and years of insider trading being illegal. You watch in advance of a listing. Does someone actually benefit uh, in a way that indicates they might have known something in advance that they should not actually be benefiting from, you know, a, a company that's going to go public, for example. Similar things in the crypto space. If a big uh, exchange like Coinbase is going to list a token, um, those inside who know about that listing can't profit from it. Uh, they're not allowed to do that. And so we're the type of company that is monitoring the activity and saying, oh, someone may have benefited from this go investigate that. Let me let me point that out to you. And then it's investigated by the company and then maybe even reported to regulators and prosecuted. So that did, in fact, happen with a Coinbase employee now that's in the Department of Justice brought a case against him and so did the SEC. Are the current regulations sufficient or if you had a magic wand, what else would you do? The biggest thing with current regulations is getting some understanding that this technology presents different challenges. One of the things that is a big issue for the industry and uh, hard to explain to common people, but we in the U.S. have totally different regulatory requirements and different regulators for commodities and securities. So if it's a stock or if we're talking about you know gold or corn, you know, they're different and, and the derivatives that come from that. There are different regimes there and then different registration requirements for any exchange or broker dealer that wants to be providing products or selling products in those arenas. And so there is a huge question about what the cryptocurrencies are, what these tokens are, and so which regime applies. And it's uh, very weedy and gets very detailed very fast, but that's a big question mark. So if you don't even know which agency to go to, and which paperwork to fill out. And this is not a simple thing. This is millions of dollars of lawyers' time to fill out that paperwork and register. That is one of the big issues that needs to be addressed. It's also fundamentally, too, to, to bring it back to real people, how we regulate technology in this space. And if I just, I produce code, software, I put it out to the world, am I liable for how people use it? And right now, code is speech in the United States. So that's that's something that is being dealt with by Congress and being thought about and is a big issue that affects all of us. But it's an issue for cryptocurrency, too, because all of those builders in decentralized finance, you know, are they building software? Is it technology or is it a financial instrument that they're trying to make money off of? And what's the difference? And how do we regulate those things? You know, there where are the lines on that? 
So there is there is need for greater clarity in the U.S. around this regulation. Well, how, how is the regulatory environment in the U.S. compared to other countries? Other countries have really, like I, I mentioned Europe and Mika earlier, other countries have, have basically gotten past that issue by saying what we say today. Company, you get to decide what you're issuing and, and we'll, you know, but we're not just going to say commodity security. We're saying commodity security and any other crypto asset. You still have to follow basic requirements around disclosure. You still have to follow basic due diligence and good corporate due diligence. So there is a regime that other countries have put in place. And actually in the U.S., the state of New York has done that too. There's, again, a a different licensing regime and an option that gets around this issue. At the federal level, you know, there hasn't been a lot of openness to that. And that's something Congress needs to work on to really help provide that clarity. And again, make the U.S. a place where builders want to be. Well, I... That time went by very quickly. I want to thank you for being with us and helping to clarify some of these issues. I think you've made it clearer than I've heard anybody make it in a very long time or ever. And uh, just want to thank you for all your service to our country and for being a patriot. And uh, best wishes for Solidus and all the things that you're doing. And uh, we'll be surveilling. <laughs> That's fantastic. And thank you, Doc, for holding this forum. Um, Great opportunity to catch up with you on important, uh, but definitely complicated topics. So glad we could help provide a a little common sense and, and a little bit of clarity to folks today, but definitely more to be talking about going forward. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home? isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. enjoyed uh, talking to Kathy about the future of cryptocurrency. It is a complex topic and something that people really should pay attention to because I think it's going to impact the whole currency market and our world going forward. So make sure you stay tuned to that. Also, you know, I I didn't mention it during the broadcast, but uh, I first got to know Kathy when she was working with Mick Mulvaney at the uh, Office of Management and Budget. And uh, 
She was a wonderful person to work with, extremely understanding and intellectually quite superior. And now for your common sense prescription for the week, it's spring, finally. You know, time for a lot of people to clean house and get a fresh start. You know, one of my favorite verses is in Psalms 51.10, Create in me a clean heart of God, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. This is time to renew. And one of the best ways to renew is to let things go that don't matter. Clean those out so you can get a fresh start. And particularly, if you're holding a grudge against somebody, you can't forgive somebody for something, let it go. Because you're actually doing yourself a favor. You're sweeping that piece of garbage out of your life and allowing yourself to move forward like spring, new and fresh. And uh, just like the new start God gives us every time we ask him for it. So that's it for this week. Please subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you get your broadcasts. Make sure you never miss an episode. And if you enjoy the show, tell others about it. Rate us and review us. And remember to treasure the cornerstones, faith, liberty, community, and life. See you next week.